A hearty hello to everyone, and welcome to another edition of See It or Shove It. I'm your host, Greg, and I'm here again this week to give you my thoughts on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV. Also this week, I share the latest arrivals on streaming services and now streaming, and Be Kind Rewind looks at the film you voted for. Let's get started. For our featured movies this week, Jennifer Lawrence returns to comedy in No Hard Feelings, Wes Anderson returns to his imaginative world in Asteroid City, a cult terrorizes a young girl in God is a Bullet, and a 90s comedy gets a remake in White Men Can't Jump. First up, when a young man's parents hire a woman to help him break out of his shell, chaos ensues. This is No Hard Feelings. They're taking my car? You went radio silent on me. Is that what this is about? Just last night, I thought, I missed that fucker. Is that true? Buongiorno! That's my cousin. I swear to God, he's my cousin. He's my second cousin. There's something seriously wrong with you. I'm an Uber driver and I don't have a car. I'm gonna lose my house. Look at this. Need a car, date our son this summer, and bring him out of his shell before college. In exchange, we'll give you a Buick Regal. Date is in close. That'd be a joke, right? Now, have you seen these helicopter parents? I'm surprised they're not gonna fuck them themselves. In this film, Oscar winner Jennifer Lawrence stars as Maddie, an Uber driver on Long Island in her early 30s, who is on the verge of bankruptcy. We see her car being repossessed, her jobs on the line thanks to her temper, and her overall bad luck in life. She is desperate to save the house her mother left to her, but it is on the brink of foreclosure. Not being able to rely on her income from her Uber driving, especially without a car, as well as her job as a bartender at a seasonal bar, Maddie answers an unusual ad that offers a Buick Regal as compensation for a job well done. The job is quite unusual. A wealthy couple, played by Matthew Broderick and Laura Benanti, is worried about their 19-year-old son Percy, played by Broadway actor Andrew Barth Feldman in his screen debut. Percy is about to head to Princeton University but is extremely introverted and has been sheltered his entire life. The couple want Maddie to seduce him and date him, among other things, and to bring him out of his shell before he leaves. She thinks it would be a simple task, but once she meets Percy, she realizes she has her work cut out for her after seeing what an inexperienced sheltered kid he is. Can Maddie break through to Percy and get the car she desperately needs? When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a see-it, and I give this film a... See-it! I enjoyed this for the most part. When I saw the trailer, I felt it was being advertised as a non-stop laugh fest, and there were moments of genuine hilarity. However, most of the extremely funny parts were already seen in the trailer, minus the full frontal beach fight. It was funny enough to keep my attention, and it was great to see Lawrence flex her comedic skills again. She is an expert with facial reactions and comedic timing, so I recommend seeing it just for that, since it's been quite a while since seeing her in a fun, comedic role. While I really liked it and enjoyed watching it, I wanted to like it more than I did. I feel they could have pushed the boundaries even more than what they did, especially since it was being advertised as the return of the raunchy comedy. Overall, though, it's worth watching. Next, director Wes Anderson rounds up an all-star cast to take us into his weird little world. This is Asteroid City. Who the president? How long 
can they keep us in Asteroid City legally? The world will never be the same. That's Alien in Jeffy Jacks. That's Alien in Top Hat. What's out there? The meaning of life. Maybe there is one. Are you married? I'm a widower. But don't tell my kids. You're saying her mother died three weeks ago. Let's say she's in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian. In my loneliness, I've learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you, but it included my daughter and your four children. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. They're strange, aren't they? They're children. Compared to normal people. Asteroid City is about many things, and I will try my best to make this summary as cohesive as possible. It centers on a play written by Conrad Earp, played by Oscar nominee Edward Norton. When the film opens, we see what looks to be a black-and-white television set and the start of a fake documentary on the theatrical play titled Asteroid City. The narrator is played by Oscar nominee Brian Cranston. The play is set in a remote town in the West that has seen a meteor crash. The town is hosting a summer camp for young, gifted teen inventors whose inventions will eventually be stolen by the U.S. government. The government representative here is played by Jeffrey Wright. Leading the teen pack is Woodrow, played by Jake Ryan. He is the son of Augie Steenback, played by Anderson regular Jason Schwartzman. Woodrow is competing for a scholarship while also grappling with the fact that his mother has recently deceased. Woodrow meets Dinah, played by Grace Edwards. Dinah is the daughter of Midge Campbell, played by Oscar nominee Scarlett Johansson. Midge is a movie star who seems very detached from emotion and feelings. Midge makes a connection with Augie, and the two begin a non-romantic connection based on each of their passions. Hers is movie making, and his is photography. Their passions may lead to more romantic endeavors later. Soon, Augie's father-in-law arrives. Stanley, played by two-time Oscar winner Tom Hanks, tries to be there to provide comfort to his grandchildren. Soon, their escapade is interrupted by two visits from an alien spacecraft. This causes the government to declare a quarantine, leaving stranded all of the visitors. And trust me, there are many, many more than I have mentioned. When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a shove-it. And I give this film a shove it. So, to be honest, as someone who generally finds Wes Anderson movies disjointed and less clever than the filmmaker thinks they are, I fully went into this with an open mind, hoping this would be an exception. I mean, there have been some titles that I've enjoyed. I was wrong. But I think I figured out my problem with his movies. I will give praise where it is due. I love the art direction and detail for each one, but his scripts, to me, feel so scattered. It's almost like I'm walking in mid-conversation, and I have no idea what anybody's talking about. It's all these little snippets, so it breaks the traditional narrative and it drives me nuts. And this one was no different. It was so manic and frenetic that I'm still not quite sure what it was that I watched. The cast was filled with stars, but they acted in a typical Anderson way, which to me is overly mannered and quirky. Was this one of the worst movies I've seen this year? No. There is plenty to admire in it, and I know Anderson is an acquired taste, and there are those who love his movies. It is just, I'm not part of that community. But if you are, you'll probably love it. And if you do, can you please explain it to me? 
Next, when a young girl is kidnapped by a cult, her father joins forces with a former member to get her back. This is God is a Bullet. They bring children here. In the end, they're killed. They keep some like me. I'd send Cyrus a message. Based on the Boston Tehran novel, God is a Bullet opens with a home invasion that leads to two murders and the daughter of a local sheriff's deputy being kidnapped. That deputy, Bob Hightower, played by Game of Thrones actor Nikolai Coster-Waldo, is now desperate to follow any path he can to get her back. One day, he is approached by a heroin-addicted tattooed woman named Case, played by Micah Monroe, who was once kidnapped by a satanic cult that drugged and sexually abused her before she managed to escape. She thinks Bob's daughter may have been kidnapped by the same group and is willing to bring him to their lair. However, in order to do this, Bob will need to infiltrate the cult life and blend in. So she takes him to the ferryman, played by Oscar winner Jamie Foxx, who gets him tatted and rough-looking so as not to stand out when he finally gets into the cult life. As Case brings Bob deeper into the underworld, the danger escalates. Will he find his daughter before it is too late? When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a shove-it. And I give this film a... Shove-it. I have mixed feelings about this one. I thought about two-thirds of it was quite well done. But the third that wasn't really wasn't. The characters had very little depth and stuck pretty much to stereotypical tropes, but the storyline was intriguing, although the execution felt laborious at times and could have used a good edit. The story did not need 2 hours and 35 minutes to tell. The cult members were your typical tattooed menacing baddies. Coster Waldo was effective, as was Monroe. Jamie Foxx was basically a glorified cameo whose role was shown as if it was important to the story, but you got me as to what his importance was. At one point, he is linked to the cult, and the next scene he is in, he is not. No explanation as to how he managed to break ties. Whatever. I think this is similar enough to other, better movies that you can go ahead and skip this one. Finally, a 90s comedy about race relations on the basketball court gets a new modern spin. This is White Men Can't Jump. You think you're slick, huh? We're showing up to court dressed like a dumbass, acting like you can't hoop. You assumed I couldn't hoop because I'm white, which is incredibly outdated. No, I assumed you couldn't hoop because you were dressed like a white girl at Whole Foods. What a love. It's really hard to plan for the future when we're always worried about money because you're out here living in a fantasy. My 30-day detox program. You want a free sample? No, I ain't drinking no boo-boo juice. Wait, it's almost the first. I'm gonna go tomorrow, I forgot. Why don't you just go now? I'll be fine. Hey, don't worry, Mommy. Don't worry, Mommy. Every hooper I know is entering that big-ass tournament with a winner get 500000 I just need somebody who can play so I can make some money. Be joking, right? 500000 for one day of hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on the 1992 hit comedy of the same name, this update shows a personal trainer named Jeremy, played by Jack Harlow, 
as a man who is unfocused in both his personal and professional life. He was once a respected basketball player in college, but was prevented from going further in his career due to two ACL ruptures. That hasn't prevented him from giving up hope, though, as he thinks that one day he can get enough money to surgically repair the ligaments and be good enough to try for the league at some level. Jeremy tries to raise the money by trash-talking black players into playing a game for cash. One day, he comes up against Kamal Allen, played by Cinqua Walls. Kamal is a former NBA potential who now has sunk to playing ball at local gyms and parks. Kamal is hot-tempered and takes the bait and is challenged to a game by Jeremy. Eventually, the two join forces with the intent of winning a large prize so they can both pursue their dreams. Will it work? I give this film a... Shove it. So, this is the third week in a row I've seen a film starring Cinqua Walls, after he was in Mending the Line and The Blackening. Unfortunately, this doesn't make three in a row that I've enjoyed. This is just a warmed-over version of the original. The 1992 version had an underlying social message about race relations and social stereotyping. While these things still exist in 2023, I feel that the urban location of this one would have lended itself better if they had updated the social message. The script didn't really offer anything new or fresh to the story, and without that, it just felt like the movie was a big meh. If you enjoyed the first one and are bored with nothing to watch, put this on and compare the two. I mean, you're not going to enjoy it, but it is interesting to compare the the original to this one. Otherwise, you can pass on this one. That's it for this week's featured films. To recap, No Hard Feelings is in theaters now and is a see it, and it is my pick of the week, if for no other reason than to see Jennifer Lawrence's performance. Asteroid City is in theaters now and is a shove it, God is a Bullet is in theaters now and is a shove it, and White Man Can't Jump is streaming on Hulu now and is a shove it. Geez, after last week with all see-its, I'm glad there were some shove-its, otherwise you're going to start thinking I liked everything. Anyway, now on to my brief take of some additional movies I've watched in my segment called Quick Picks. The romantic comedy The Perfect Fine stars Regina Hall as a woman who makes a connection with a much, much younger man who may have a connection with someone else in her life. It's a um, typical love story, but it was enjoyable to watch, and it's now streaming on Netflix. And the documentary The Last Rider details cyclist Greg LeMond's attempt at a comeback after being shot when he enters the 1989 Tour de France. I found it gripping because I didn't follow that sport during the time, so I really didn't know how it was going to end. Um, so I enjoyed that, and it is now playing in select theaters. Now it's time to find out where some of the films released within the last few months are now available for home viewing. This is now streaming. Last week, I only found one new title for streaming, and now, this week, we have a ton. 
The South Korean drama Broker is a fantastic film about two men who work as baby brokers, illegally selling unwanted children to couples for profit, and things don't go as planned when they encounter the mother of one of these babies. It is a fantastic movie, and it is now streaming on Hulu. The alleged comedy Maybe I Do has a plethora of stars from Diane Keaton and Emma Roberts to Richard Gere and William H. Macy, and that couldn't save this piece of garbage from failing. You'll be saying, maybe I won't, when you think about watching. But if you do, and you want to, it's streaming on Hulu. The Devil Conspiracy is an unscary, ridiculous attempt at horror, and you shouldn't waste your time with it. However, if you're into that sort of thing, it is now streaming on Hulu, and you can hear my full review on episode 54. Evil Dead Rise, on the other hand, is actually quite scary, although if I remember correctly, I wished it was even scarier. It is a worthy entry into the franchise and can now be seen on Max. You can hear my full review on episode 76. Loudmouth is a documentary about the life of the Reverend Al Sharpton and is quite an interesting look at his rise as a social advocate and political figure. It is now streaming on Showtime. And Infinity Pool is one weird-ass movie about a cult that influences a man to trade his dignity and morals for a life of crime. It is now streaming on Hulu, and you can hear my full review on episode 57. Wrapping up this week's episode, it is time for my segment where I look at films from the past. This is Be Kind Rewind. Continuing on my series where I take the 52-week movie challenge, this week's topic was a movie celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. The contenders were The Truman Show, The Wedding Singer, and The Big Lebowski. You voted, and the film you selected was The Truman Show. Good morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. What if? No scripts, no cue cards. Morning, Spencer! How's it going? What if you were watched every moment of your life? How many cameras you got there in that town? I believe Truman is the first child to have been legally adopted by a corporation. That's correct. Brilliant. What if everyone you knew was pretending? Hi, honey. Look what I got at the checkout. Dishwasher safe. That's amazing. Directed by six-time Academy Award nominee Peter Weir, The Truman Show tells the story of Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey. Truman is a man who lives an ordinary life in a seemingly ordinary town where everything around him is, well, ordinary. Truman is not happy with the trajectory of his life, and he wants to go away and explore what life has to offer. However, there is one problem. The reality of Truman's life is, unbeknownst to him, a reality show. After being selected at birth because he was an unwanted pregnancy, Truman has been living his life on television without him even realizing it. Every decision of his life has been orchestrated by a Big Brother-esque figure named Kristoff, the executive producer and creator of The Truman Show, played by Ed Harris. Every interaction Truman has is with an actor playing a role as Kristoff tries to squeeze every emotional hook he can for audiences at home. One day, Truman accidentally encounters aspects of the production and begins to question his reality. Enough strange occurrences happen for Truman to plot an adventure to escape and find the truth. 
Released on June 5, 1998, The Truman Show was a hit that summer, but it wasn't a smooth road to the screen. Initially, the role of Kristoff was played by Dennis Hopper, who, depending on who you ask, either left the production or was fired after the start of the filming. Several stars declined the role before they settled on Ed Harris. It worked out well for Harris, as the role earned him his second of four Oscar nominations. Director Brian De Palma was originally slated to direct, but was replaced by Weir. Weir, too, benefited from the change, as he earned the fourth of his six Oscar nominations. Weir wanted the script to be funnier, as he felt it was too dark of a story for audiences. As a result, screenwriter Andrew Nichol wrote 16 drafts of the script before Weir was happy with the result. He, too, benefited from the headache, as Nichol received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. One person who did not benefit from the tumultuous production was Carey, who, despite winning the Golden Globe for his performance, was passed over by the Academy when nominations were announced. Despite having several dramatic roles, Carey has never gained the attention of the Academy when there has been plenty of opportunity to do so. I guess when his role in Ace Ventura had him literally talking out of his ass, that is a reputation that isn't easily forgotten by the then-highbrow Academy. I do have a feeling that if the film was released now, he would be more of a serious contender for a nomination. But again, maybe not. It hasn't turned out so well for Adam Sandler in recent years, who has turned in stunning performances in a few of his films. It's just hard to break through to the Academy when you are known as a slapstick comedian, I guess. The film grossed more than $264 million on a budget of $60 million, and received overwhelmingly positive notices from critics and audiences alike. It's even been studied in psychology circles who have named a disease after the film. The Truman Show's delusion is a syndrome where people with schizophrenia believe their life is a reality show. Upon hearing this, screenwriter Nichols said, You know you've made it when you have a disease named after your work. The Truman Show is available to stream on Paramount+. Plus. Next week's Be Kind Rewind topic is a film featuring an illness. What an uplifting topic! Anyway, the contenders are One True Thing, Philadelphia, or Terms of Endearment. Come to my Instagram at theatershoveit to vote for which film I should focus on, and the post with the most likes will be next week's segment. So it's time to end this episode of Theater Shove It. Thank you so much for joining me and supporting my podcast again this week. I really appreciate the time you give me. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month, and while you're at it, share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. And if you haven't already, don't forget to listen to part one of my summer miniseries, 50 Years, 50 Movies, where I share my favorite movie from each year of my life. Part two will be coming later this week, along with the July edition of Trailer Talk, so look for those later on this week. Don't forget, you can drop me a line at theatershoveit at gmail.com and let me know of any ideas or suggestions. Also, follow me on Instagram and letterboxd at theatershoveit and rate me wherever you get your podcast. Come back next week to hear my thoughts on all the new releases, including Childhood Crushes Reuniting in Past Lives, A Teenager Has a Nautical Secret in Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, and Harrison Ford Suits Up Again for One Last Round in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Have a great week, everyone. This episode of Theater Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. 
Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved.